You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 7. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. On this episode of the show, we're talking with Julian Fennessy. Julian is the executive director and conservation scientist at the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to creating a sustainable future for all wild giraffe populations. The video that we produced about giraffe conservation in Tanzania in partnership with the Wild Nature Institute, called the Maasai Giraffe, has been one of our most popular Eyes on Conservation episodes to date, and we wanted to learn more about some of the questions presented in this video. We'll be re-releasing this video alongside of this episode of the podcast on our companion Eyes on Conservation video podcast, so be sure to check that out if you haven't seen it already. Julian is without a doubt the best person to answer these big questions about the giraffe and giraffe conservation. He's been studying giraffes for over 15 years and is the co-founder of the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, which is the only organization completely dedicated to the conservation of wild giraffe populations. We're extremely happy to have him on the show, so let's jump right into that interview. Okay, I am here with Julian Fennessy, who is the Executive Director and Conservation Scientist at the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, an organization with the mission of creating a sustainable future for all wild giraffe populations. Welcome to the program, Julian. Thanks, Matthew. Really appreciate uh, inviting me on board to be able to chat to everyone about all things giraffe. Yeah, you bet. It's great to have you here. So I want to jump right in here and ask you about the founding of the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, the organization that you work for. Um, and, and you're also a co-founder of that organization. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. In uh, 2009, after, you know, essentially five years of doing giraffe conservation and research activities across the continent, sort of teamed up with a few people to uh, actually set up the first and, from my understanding, the only dedicated uh, organization to helping to conserve giraffe in the wild. So we came together. Um, Interestingly, people uh, asked me, how did it start, of course? And there was a banker in the UK who said, well, if I give money to one of the large conservation NGOs who do wildlife across the world, what are you going to do with it, Julian? Funnily enough, I said probably very little because that funding won't reach giraffe conservation and the activities that I'm involved with. So from there, we uh, we set it all up. And uh, interestingly, in September of this year, um, I was appointed as the executive director. So it's the first time in my knowledge that there's ever been a full-time giraffe conservationist ever. Wow, that's amazing, actually, that, you know, we have such this this amazingly enigmatic species that's recognizable all across the globe. And yet, yeah, like you say, you're the very first person who is sort of focused full time on the, the conservation of the species. Amazing. Yeah. It's, a, it's also a little bit sad. I mean, we've had, you know, we've all done, or some of us have been fortunate enough to do masters or PhD studies and been able to commit a number of years, which is brilliant. But, uh, you know, when I started looking at it, I was really surprised at the lack of people doing anything. And I think, you know, whilst it has increased today, it, uh, you know, it surprises me that there's not more people out there doing stuff. So hopefully this is the start of many people to get on board. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, um, I, I am curious to know a bit about uh, your your involvement in dra- draft conservation efforts uh, before the founding of the Draft Conservation Foundation. I assume that sort of your research uh, that that you were involved in draft research beforehand, and that sort of led to um, sort of the inspiration to found the organization. Yeah, I was I was lucky enough to live in Namibia from the late nineties up until two thousand and three, and. And during that time period, I did field work for a PhD um, after doing many years of work uh, in the field of environmental education and running around being an ecologist in the bush. So that sort of led to me writing up a piece of paper for the PhD back at uh, University of Sydney in Australia. Uh, I'm from Melbourne, Australia originally. So I thought, oh, it's a good time to go home, tick the boxes and maybe get on with life. Um, but realized uh, once I got back to Australia and wrote up everything that uh, people were asking questions about giraffe and, uh, you know, a Japanese film crew said, can we borrow you for six weeks? So in late 2004, I came back to Namibia and we did a, a documentary with NHK on that. And then soon after, the European Union contacted me and said, can you help develop a strategy? The first ever giraffe conservation strategy for a country was in Niger, So I flew out a number of times over the next couple of years to Niger and helped uh, the government formulate the first ever strategy. And I suppose during that same time period, um, we, you know, with the uh, information from Niger, we had the first ever giraffe subspecies, the Peralta or the West African giraffe, listed as endangered on the IUCN red list, which then led to doing more work in 2010 and getting the Rothschilds giraffe listed as endangered. So I suppose it's, uh, you know, while I was working full time, you know, it was good fun to sort of play with giraffe on the side and keeping sort of the foot in the door, so to speak. Uh, we also developed a, uh, a newsletter, which has now been running since, um, how would I say, probably the mid 2000s. Uh, and it comes out twice a year called, uh, now called Giraffe. It's the newsletter of the Giraffe Conservation Foundation and the IUCN Giraffe and Akapi Specialist Group. So I suppose just dabbling away and, you know, really putting some time and effort in. And uh, years later, uh, here I am still involved, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's fantastic. Fantastic. Um, yeah, and it's neat to hear about uh, uh, some of those resources that, that you guys have available. Um, I, I can definitely include links to um, to that newsletter in our show notes uh, uh, for the episode here. Um, so you mentioned, you know, these two subspecies of giraffe that, um, I mean, relatively recently were uh, listed on the IUCN red list for the first time as endangered. Um, you know, and, and, and I read on your website that, um, you know, uh, basically, you know, over the past 15 or so years, we've seen uh, uh, pretty precipitous declines in giraffe populations overall. Something like forty percent is, I think, the number I read on your site. Um, and it, I mean, it 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 just seems to me like giraffes are facing these threats in virtually every part of of Africa that they inhabit. And I'm, I, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, is there an underlying cause to this? Or I, I mean, I'm sure there's uh, I'm sure there's multiple underlying causes uh, uh, going on here, but um, you know, what's really at the heart of this issue? What, what just in the last 15 years has caused draft, draft populations to decline so uh, precipitously? 
Well, I think um, giraffe in general probably can be termed the forgotten megafauna. You know, we know a lot about elephant. We know a lot about rhino and for good reasons. You know, numbers are um, going down because of their, um, you know, the products that they carry around with them. Giraffe, um, interestingly, have sort of haven't been on the radar. Um, maybe it's they're not as socially interesting or what people perceive to be socially interesting as elephants. Um, but that drop of about 40% or a little bit more in the last 15 years, I think a lot of it uh, has resulted um, in poaching, illegal hunting. Um, you know, in you know, Derek Lee and Monica Bond, who I know you've had on your podcast previously, have um, discussed uh, the issues and the threats facing there. And most recently, even today in the newspaper in northern Tanzania, there's increased hunting of giraffe for HIV AIDS. It's believed that the meat of the giraffe will help save people. Um, in war-torn areas, say northern Kenya, South Sudan, northern DRC, etc., we can go across the whole of Central Africa, giraffe numbers have been plummeting. Not really because they're hunted, you know, for a trophy at all. They're hunted because there's a lot of meat. So they're war fodder. People uh, are fortunate, uh, you know, in many countries to live above the poverty line. But in areas that there's civil unrest, um, people have really hunted giraffe because there's at least a ton of meat on a very large animal. So that will feed a lot of people for a long time. So giraffe have been at that demise. And I think interesting, the Lord's Resistance Army, Coney, as many people might know, um, in northern DRC, have been hunting elephants for their ivory, which has helped sort of feed the criminal syndicates and Al-Shabaab. But they've actually been eating giraffe. So it's a real byproduct of this trade. And you combine poaching with habitat loss. There's a human population growth is booming in Africa. It's one of the big businesses, let's be honest, people breeding. And with breeding comes the need for more land. So agricultural needs increase, uh, and as a result, habitat for wildlife is basically getting slimmer and slimmer on the ground, and it's also getting more fragmented. Um, so those factors together are probably the three main factors of illegal hunting, habitat loss, and habitat fragmentation. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, I mean, it, it, it really sounds, I mean, yeah, it, 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 it's interesting that you tie these issues for, uh, you know, that other uh, megafauna species in Africa are facing, such as elephants, in with uh, uh, sort of these threats to giraffe. And I mean, really, these are social and political issues, right? Um, so I guess, I guess my next question for you is, you know, how, how do you, I mean, both you personally, but also, you know, as the executive director of the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, how do you guys go about, you know, trying to address this big picture issue when the underlying cause is something, uh, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say it seems unattainable, but I mean, we're, you know, we're looking at these, you know, these very difficult sort of political and social issues that it seems like have to be dealt with in order to to resolve a lot of these uh, uh, issues that we're facing with giraffes. No, that's, that's very true, Matthew. I mean, you know, at the crux of all of this is people. Um, and, you know, the root of all evil often has been people around the world. Uh, but we're positive. We, we would be not here if we wanted to be positive and remain positive. 
Um, in Chad, as an example, where elephants have been poached considerably over the last decade, giraffe numbers are actually increasing. That's really positive. Um, so what we try to do, we as the GCF, we're a network organization. We're fortunate that we do do some of our own conservation efforts on the ground across Africa. Um, you know, in particular, we have Namibia and Uganda where we do work um, and we have agreements with governments, with other local NGOs. But in those areas that uh, we can't be and, you know, we don't want to grow and become a mega NGO, we partner with people. So, you know, let's say in Niger, we've worked locally with conservation organizations and researchers who do stuff on the ground. So how about we provide technical support? We provide fundraising. In the northern DRC, in the Garumba National Park, where there's estimated to be 30 giraffe remaining in the wild. Recently, we've been providing technical advice um, on satellite collars to be able to find out where they're moving. We've been looking at helping them set up fence areas. And hopefully in the new year, we'll go up and physically help them capture some of those last remaining giraffe. So what we're doing at the sort of at the crux, at the coalface also, is we're providing some resources, whether that's technical or financial, to help those best placed to do things. We can't just go in as a, you know, sort of a foreign body and say, yes, no, we're Superman to the rescue to help save giraffe everywhere. Sadly, it's just not possible. But what we're doing is building those net networks. We're building those relationships. And a lot of that may well be linked to other development activities. In uh, Uganda, we work with the Ugandan Wildlife Education Center um, to help impact local people by bringing information and materials about education and awareness. In Namibia, we're just piloting at the moment the first uh, environmental education program for school children in the capital. So some of these are things that we really want to um, be able to facilitate and be able to support others to achieve. I'm not going to say it's going to change. Um, some countries, you know, are going to be in civil unrest ongoing for many, many years. But if we can make a little difference, uh, if we can work together with others to help um, save some of, you know, Africa's most amazing wildlife, then, you know, we've achieved something. And that's what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's fantastic. And it's, you know, it's, I, I, it, it's really uplifting for, for me, you know, uh, uh, and, and hopefully for other, you know, listeners. Uh, I, I mean, I think anywhere outside of Africa, you know, to, to hear about people who are taking issues like this that, you know, uh, uh, seem uh, so sort of out of our reach, you know, um, and you're finding, you know, realistic ways to partner with our organizations and, and take these steps that, that, um, that have an impact and, ha you know, have a positive impact on the species, which is fantastic. Um, so I kind of, I, I want to sort of dive into the issue of the uh, uh, giraffe subspecies. And so I've, I've heard um, through talking with uh, uh, Monica Bond and Derek Lee, who were uh, uh, previous guests on the podcast, that um, scientists are considering splitting all of these giraffe subspecies uh, into their own separate species groups. So I guess I'm wondering if, if you know, you or the Giraffe Conservation Foundation is involved in this process. Um, and if, if you personally think that these giraffe subspecies should actually be considered distinct species. So that's the million dollar question. Everybody <laughs> wants to find out. 
what's happening? Are they distinct? Are they not? Um, I've been fortunate uh, individually, but then in the last five years uh, with GCF, to be conducting for more than a decade now sort of a comprehensive genetic uh, assessment and analysis of uh, giraffe across the whole continent. We have uh, collected samples from almost every major population on the continent. Um, some of it's been great fun to go and find uh, these animals and be able to chase them down. Um, others we still have to finish next year. So we've, I've just been literally today talking with Ugandan Wildlife uh, Conservation Authority to, oh no, sorry, the Ethiopian uh, Authority to head up there in um, March next year to sample on the board with, border with South Sudan probably places people don't want to go on a holiday. Um, also, hopefully mid next year to go to Cameroon. So these are the last remaining samples we need. What we've seen to date, uh, based on our research, is that the giraffe in many places are especially or genetically distinct. Um, they are so distinct in some areas that if you use some of these uh, what they call species concepts, giraffe would easily meet the criteria for being a different species. Some of the populations are more than a million years separated. It's interesting, you know, if you look at uh, the split in giraffe, which actually goes back to two million years for what we call the current day giraffe, we split bears about 800,000 years ago. And we know there's brown bears, black bears, polar bears, and they're all distinct species. Yet we're still calling giraffe one species and nine subspecies. So myself, I'll be honest, I'm neither a splitter, as they call it, or a clumper, um, bringing them all together. But what I want to use is the best scientific knowledge. And that, to me, is getting all of the DNA data and that includes the mitochondrial, which is the female inherited DNA, uh, as well as the nuclear DNA, which is the, uh, you know, father sort of, you know, paternal inherited DNA. Get all that information analyzed. And by mid next year, we'll combine that information looking at the pelage or the coat patterns of the different giraffe. We'll look at the morphology, the skull in particular. And, you know, some have what they call ossicones or horns. Some have some that are more prominent than others. And then importantly, look at the phylogeography. So basically looking at where giraffe are across Africa, how they split up many years ago and become distinct in those areas. If we can bring all that information together and bring a, a group of really clever boffins to help us figure out are they species or not species. But I think what's fascinating and what's sort of driving uh, interest in it recently is that last year we published a paper that showed the thorny cross giraffe, which is one of the nine currently um, sort of uh, subspecies, um, that is genetically identical to the Maasai giraffe. So that's sort of one of the precursors of why people are talking about it. And Interestingly, just two weeks ago, we published a paper looking at the northeastern Namibia and the Botswana giraffe, and there's some interesting splits there as well. Uh, we thought some in northern Botswana uh, were the same as those in Namibia, but actually they're not. They are genetically different, and those in northeast Namibia are actually the same as South African giraffe. So we have two different types of giraffe in Namibia, 
But again, that's looking at the mitochondrial DNA. Let's wait till the nuclear DNA. And in all honesty, whether they come out as species or not, the most important thing to me is if they are unique, they are populations that we need to manage for conservation. And that, to me, is the most critical factor. If they are unique, let's manage them as unique. Let's not share them. Let's not translocate them into other areas that they are distinct. Let's come together, have the best information at hand, and manage them appropriately. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's uh, that. That is my next question: is you know, uh, uh, if there are sort of, uh, I mean, I, I guess, like you say, whether or not you know, the decision is made to split them into their, you know, consider them their own distinct species, or if they're just considered subspecies, um, you know, what, what are the conservation implications of this genetic research? And are there subspecies populations out there right now that, I mean, uh, uh, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that there are two populations, two subspecies populations that are um, on, on the IUCN red list. Um, I mean, are there other, you know, uh, how are all these different subspecies populations doing in general? Are there some that are doing better than others? Are there others that are, you know, facing pretty dire threats and are close to extinction? Yeah, I think, uh, Matthew, the important thing, as, as you hit on there, is the management. If we know what they are, we know what flavor, for want of a better word, or subspecies or species giraffe are, we can help manage them better. Um, and that's important, especially because if you look at the numbers, um, if you look at the West African giraffe, which has made an amazing uh, sort of increase of numbers from the mid-1990s of 50 individuals to probably just over 400 currently, yet they're still on the endangered. And what people thought before is that they're the same as those that are in Central Africa or part of Central Africa. We've been able to show genetically that they are very distinct. So let's not mix those populations. If we're looking at biodiversity conservation as one of the reasons why we're conserving animals, that uniqueness of these animals, then uh, let's maintain that. So the population of the West African giraffe, yeah, it's still in dire straits. And then you look at, say, the population of Nubian giraffe, which is Ethiopia, maybe South Sudan. We estimate maybe 650 individuals. No one really knows. So there's been recent surveys to understand more, and that's why we're heading up there also in the new year and working with the University of Addis Ababa to be able to understand what's happening and be able to supply the Ethiopian government with the best information at hand to help manage their populations. One of the really interesting things I find is that with translocations, people, in, especially in Southern Africa, have picked up animals and moved them between countries. And this is without the basic scientific knowledge. So if it does show that they are unique, basically we're hybridizing animals, which for the last million or so years have remained ecologically separated. Yes, we pick up things and move them and they do interbreed, but in the wild we're finding that giraffe do not. Um, and yet, you know, we're playing sort of this figure of uh, sort of a supreme being to be able to move things around. So I think, um, you know, it'll be interesting as we move forward. Uh, populations of uh, those in, say, Central Africa, where there's estimated less than 2,000 individuals and numbers decreasing in some but increasing in others, what can we do to help conserve them is going to be on sort of, you know, the, the tip of the tongue for every government, I think, moving forward. Because from a conservation perspective, if we do name them as separate species, 
Then you do the red list assessment, which we're currently doing, uh, and that'll be ready by mid next year. We will have some of the most endangered large mammals in the world. And I think people will actually be quite shocked with that. And I don't know how governments and international NGOs and bodies really want to uh, see that um, happen because 400 individuals of West African giraffe remaining in the world and we're supposed to do something about it. You know, we're worried about elephants and rightly so, but there's maybe 500,000 of them. So how do we come together? And, you know, we need good PR around this. We need a good understanding from the governments and collaboration with them and other partners to be able to help manage uh, this species subspecies mix and also the IUCN red listing as we move forward for all of the different types of giraffe. You're right in the sense that, um, you know, the big picture for giraffe and how giraffe populations have declined by 40% over the last 15 years. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, it's, it seems surprising that not very many people know about that. Um, you know, just seems like people just don't have an, an, a, the same type of awareness of the threats that are facing giraffe in, in Africa as they do for, you know, say elephants or rhinos. Um, but I, I think you're right that, you know, uh, splitting all these subspecies up into their own distinct species could, could really have a, a, you know, I think potentially a pretty serious impact on the way folks perceive um, these animals um, and, and the, the, the threats that they're facing. Agree. And, you know, we're not, it's not an arbitrary split either. And I think that's important that um, if they are so unique on the various, you know, sort of factors looking at them, then they should be considered unique. I mean, a lot of this is based on what we term folklore taxonomy that was done a couple of hundred years ago um, on one sample sent somewhere in the world. Um, so we can't hold everything that we did a couple of hundred years ago as gospel. So, but I think importantly, if, you know, and when I'm sure that we do find out that these populations are unique in themselves, uh, we're going to get uh, red listing assessments that are definitely in the threatened cat and categories. And what that does result in is often is increased awareness and funding support um, to help conserve them. And that's really critical. So if we can provide a solid baseline, we hopefully can entice and encourage and partner with other organizations and individuals around Africa and the world to be able to come together and save giraffe. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm curious to hear a bit about uh, the the work that you're currently doing in Namibia. Um, I guess, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned that, um, you know, working with giraffe in Namibia was uh, your, your PhD project. Um, are you still involved in sort of direct field observations or direct field research with giraffe in, in Namibia? Um, I guess I'm just sort of trying to dig in and figure out, you know, uh, uh, what sort of your, you know, day-to-day work looks like, uh, living in that part of the world. Yeah, I know. I think, uh, Namibia is amazing. It's, uh, it's Africa for beginners as people term it. Some people don't like that, but the reality is it's a, it's a great country to work in. Uh, there's a very small human population, very large landmass relatively, um, and you combine that with, you know, amazing conservation um, support from the government. So, yes, we do continue to do research, especially on what's termed the desert dwelling giraffe up in northwest Namibia. Um, you know, we see giraffe walk around in and amongst sand dunes on gravel plains. 
uh, living in an area of less than 50 millimetres of rainfall a year. Um, so this is quite a unique population and uh, we have continued our research back up there working closely with community conservancies, which are groups of people who come together to manage land and get benefit from the wildlife, in particular through tourism. So we work closely with them and we have, um, what's interestingly, a, um, a PhD student, hopefully will start uh, next year from the University of New South Wales and continue some of the, um, you know, the hardcore research side of things while we ourselves day to day focus more on figuring out how many giraffe there are in Namibia. Uh, we're developing a country profile as we've done for 20 odd countries around Africa to see how many giraffe are there? And that's really the basis of understanding their numbers today. Combined on top of that, we're also, you know, the environmental education program that I mentioned. And, you know, hopefully as we move forward, we're also looking at uh, developing a national strategy for giraffe conservation in the country. So this is just an example of one program we do. But, you know, day to day, like everyone, you sit behind a desk, uh, you know, you pump out proposals, write reports, um, but we're quite fortunate enough to, you know, travel quite a bit um, across Africa working on different projects. Um, interestingly, I am up in northwest Namibia later this week um, for 10 days working with uh, a German film crew uh, as well as GEO, which is the German equivalent of National Geographic, who are coming out to do a story. So we're out and about. Um, we're off early December, off to Zimbabwe, Zambia and Botswana, looking at giraffe and working closely in Zambia with the Zambian Wildlife Authority um, to figure out, you know, what's happening in some of their smaller populations in the southwest of the country. But, you know, day to day, everything you're doing, whether it's marketing, website, fundraising, technical support, um, we're fortunate to do a lot, but, uh, you know, we're small. We're just one full-time staff member uh, at the moment. My wife uh, provides invaluable support uh, part-time uh, to the organization. And uh, as we grow, we don't want to grow too big because uh, we want to provide that network support. We don't want to have uh, our own staff members running everywhere across the continent. You've got to manage people. And as we've already said earlier, people are difficult. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. And I, I definitely... Um understand uh you know some i guess both the benefits and the difficulties of uh running a small nonprofit with only one or two full-time staff members <laughs> as i'm in a similar situation here um but yeah i mean it sounds like you guys are you know you, you guys are really making it work with the resources that you have available which is fantastic so my next question is um you know you 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 mentioned that there are a few sort of, uh, uh, I guess, seeds of hope for for giraffe. You know that you mentioned uh, um, the the West African giraffe. You know has is increased from fifty individuals to up over four hundred. Um, I guess I'm wondering, you know, are are there other are there other success stories, other areas where giraffe are doing well that maybe we can learn from? And say, you know, just sort of look look at a situation and say, you know, this is this is what's going right in this situation, um, and sort of use that to come up with conservation strategies for some of these other areas where giraffe aren't doing so well. Well, interestingly, giraffe numbers in Namibia and South Africa are increasing, which is brilliant. 
Um, so it is a shining light. Uh, there's great conservation practices on public, private, and communal land in uh, in both of these countries. Um, but they do do things differently. There is sort of a large, you know, sort of private land entity uh, in Southern Africa that there's not really as you move up into East and Central Africa. So some of the, you know, sort of uh, benefits or some of the advantages of Southern Africa can probably be transposed. Um, but I think that relies on really good governance. Um, that's important. Um, needs to be good monitoring. There needs to be good uh, population control, stopping poaching, illegal hunting, things like that. So in countries, sadly, like Kenya and Tanzania at the moment, it just seems like the number's continuing to drop. Um, and I think maybe that is related to a bit of governance issues. Um, and, of course, that giraffe maybe has not been prioritised as important. So as we move forward, we definitely want these examples to get out there. And I think one of the things really that we've done, and you may have noticed over the last year, is that you know GCF and other giraffe conservationists have really started to bring more attention to the world. Um, I've just spent five weeks in the States um, talking across the continent um, to various audiences about how we can work together and how we can increase awareness and education about giraffe and, you know, how to conserve them in the wild. And you're probably going to touch on it later, but, you know, things like World Giraffe Day. So this was an, an initiative that we kicked off um, of GCF this year. It's the 21st of June, uh, which ironically, of course, is the longest day for the tallest animal. It's those <laughs> events, you know, it's a brilliant, uh, it's a brilliant sort of uh catch i think yeah i like that (laughs) so what what we're really interested in is uh is getting people involved and sharing the word and that's just something that giraffe hasn't had before and i think world giraffe day hit a note with many people around the world so if we're trying to share these stories with governments with other conservation ngos um, about the successes in niger and chad and southern africa we need to do that in both a scientific, technical, as well as a popular way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and you're right. You 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 did sort of touch on my next question here, which is, you know, what fo- folks who live outside of Africa, but you know, who love giraffes, you know, what what can folks like that do to help? You know, um, obviously they can celebrate, uh, you know, World Giraffe Day um, for sure. Um, but I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, uh, uh, like we've talked about, you know, giraffes, it's, it's just such an iconic animal, you know. I mean, even for people who live so far from uh, sort of the natural habitat of the species and so far away from these wild giraffe populations in Africa, I mean, everybody's seen a giraffe, you know. It's, um, it's, it's just so iconic of an animal. Um, but you know, is is there anything tangible? I mean, is 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 education really? Uh, I mean, is that sort of the 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 solution? Is that you know uh, uh, just spreading the word about these issues, um, or is there anything else tangible that that folks you know living outside of Africa can do to help draft populations? Well, you know, the honest truth is, money helps. Let's be honest, um, and it's always a tough issue. But being able to provide funding helps us as GCF and other draft conservationists be able to get on the ground, be able to work with people to really figure out how many giraffe are, what are the threats, how do we stop these threats, whether it's um, providing, you know, 
resources to wildlife authorities or non-government organizations, NGOs out in the field. So definitely by, uh, you know, donating, you know, go online to Giraffe Conservation, contact us. We're happy to chat with everyone. We, we really have great relationships, especially in the States with zoos community. Um, many zoos are coming on board as partners. So, you know, as they celebrate World Giraffe Day, I can only encourage people to get down to the local zoo, be involved in programs, convince your zoo if they're not even hosting a World Giraffe Day event um, to get on board. Um, I think importantly, you know, what, what people can do is they can get a general awareness, A, about giraffe, but B, about what are the threats? You know, yes, we've talked about uh, human population growth, but one of the things that's happening also is there's, you know, oil um, and mining for oil and the expansion of that is causing habitat loss and fragmentation in areas across Africa. So people at home, you know, maybe you look at don't having bottled water or you don't use plastic bags. These are all made from oil. So if we can reduce the oil consumption, Maybe we can reduce the amount that we need to go out and find in new areas, especially those areas there's wildlife currently live. So there is some things people can do closer at home and really connect that back to giraffe and other wildlife. Um, people always say they can't do something at home, but, you know, plant a tree. Um, yes, you know, habitat loss is a huge thing in Africa, um, but maybe we need to move forward in some areas and start planting trees, uh, working with local people like happens in Niger to be able to rebuild the, uh, the habitat and the food source for giraffe. But by doing it at home, you can maybe say, I'm going to plant a tree at home and I'm going to donate to be able to have a tree planted in Niger or in another country in Africa. So I think there is a few things that people really can do beyond just uh, learning. Um, if you're lucky, you get to go on a holiday to Africa and maybe choosing an organization or a travel company that is sustainably minded, that they do work with us, um, with giraffe conservation in the wild. Um, many of the uh, benefits from, you know, some of these organizations goes back to working with conservation organizations like us. So A, you get an amazing trip in a beautiful part of the world, but B, you get to know that you actually are doing something small. And the last one I'll finish off on, I think, is a really an interesting thing and one I'd love to encourage all your listeners out there to do is many zoos, you get the opportunity to feed a giraffe. So what you can do is you can go to the zoo and you pay a couple of dollars and you get an opportunity to engage with the world's most iconic animal, let's be honest. And you get to feed it and you get this closeness. But what I'd love people to do is convince their zoos and I've been talking to many of them and some of them are already on board to say, how about a percentage of what I've just paid goes directly to help save their giraffe cousins back in the wild? You can get a little sticker maybe printed, you know, from the zoo and it says, I just saved the giraffe. And I think that is the most direct benefit and engagement that we can do. So get on board, I reckon, everybody. Contact me and we can hopefully help all save giraffe together. Yeah, that I love that idea. The idea that, yeah, you, you pay a little bit of extra money to feed the giraffe and the money goes directly into conservation. That's fantastic. Is that something that you guys have uh, set up with, with a bunch of zoos in the U.S. already? Yeah, that's something that uh, I was fortunate enough to share around uh, the States in September, October when I was there. Um, as an example, the Naples Zoo in uh, Florida 
really excited by the opportunity, straight away said, I'd love to come on board and be involved in this. Um, so I think that's a prime example how zoos, you know, it's not going to take off their bottom line. Um, and it's important. Zoos need, you know, operational budget like any business. Um, but this is something a little bit extra that people can add. Um, Oakland Zoo did a special day from uh, Oakland Zoo that, sorry, is in uh, San Francisco, um, did a special day uh, for World Giraffe Day this year, and they fed giraffe, and all of the money went directly to giraffe conservation in the wild. So I really think using the animals as ambassadors and using the people who are coming and supporting and getting that engagement, you can't go wrong. We all love feeding giraffe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's just fantastic. I mean, that that's something that um, that's something that that I will certainly do because um, you know we've cool. got we've got a great zoo here in Boise, Idaho um, that that does contribute a lot of money directly to conservation programs in Africa. Um, but as far as I know, they're not sort of directly involved in uh, any of these giraffe specific conservation programs. Um, and and I, I have a few folks I can I can talk to and see if I can get something like that up off the ground. So that's fantastic. No, have a have a chat to Steve, who's the CEO there, and uh, I think it'd be great. They do really amazing work uh, in conservation. Does uh, does Zoo Boise? So yeah, getting them on board for giraffe would be brilliant. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, you you touched on a lot, uh, a, a a few really excellent points there. I mean, I I, I love that you sort of you know. Uh, uh, bring up this idea of how interconnected, you know, we are with not just, you know, the, the ecosystems and the natural areas that, you know, we, that we live in, but I mean, we're really connected with, you know, ecosystems all around the planet, you know, and, and these simple, seemingly simple decisions that we make buying bottled water, uh, using plastic bags. I mean, you're right. I mean, they really do have an impact in just spreading that awareness of, you know the the effect that these small decisions make is is extremely important and and I also love that you know uh, I mean we sort of started off this conversation talking about you know your sort of inspiration to found the giraffe conservation foundation um and you know your uh sort of uh co-founder in the UK who you know basically asked you you know if I donate this money to this you know, extremely large nonprofit that is doing conservation work in Africa, like how much of it is going to go to funding your giraffe research? And you're like, well, basically nothing, you know? Um, and I yeah. think, you know, for folks who are out there, you know, who do have the ability to contribute um, to uh, nonprofit conservation programs, um, I would absolutely, you know, recommend looking at small nonprofits as the best way to sort of directly see you know, the effect that your money is having um, on a species. That's just something that I, I think it's I think it's good that <laughs> that you put that um, that that little pitch for funding in there, because, I mean, you guys are doing really important work. And, you know, for folks who um, have have that ability to contribute and, you know, really want to see the immediate direct impact that um, their funding can have on the recovery of the species. No, I, I appreciate that. And I think, uh, you know, we can all do something and that's the nice thing. Uh, and it's great. I think small NGOs often have big impacts for the budgets uh, and for the time and the resources. And, you know, it's great. We have volunteers who provide, you know, support and ideas. And I think, you know, I, I don't just say it, but I do really mean that, you know, 
by together we can all make a difference. That's the reality. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thanks a lot for coming onto the program, Julian, and for chatting with us about giraffe conservation and all the amazing things that the Giraffe Conservation Foundation is is doing to help protect giraffes. No, thank you, Matthew. Really appreciate it, and uh, you know, look forward to uh, you know future discussions as more and more information about giraffe comes out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we should have additional conversations in the future. We'll talk next year once um, you guys have finished collecting all of your genetic data and you're about to make a decision about whether or not to split all the subspecies into distinct species. Cool. Look forward to that. (laughs) Great. Thanks a lot, Julian. Excellent. Take care, Matthew. Cheers, mate. All right. That was our conversation with Julian Fennessy from the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. There is certainly a lot of fascinating research going on with giraffe populations across Africa right now, and it will be particularly interesting to see what the genetic data that Julian is is helping collect will tell us about how distinct from one another all these different populations and subspecies of giraffe are. As Julian mentions in the interview, this research really has the potential to dramatically alter the way that giraffes are perceived all across the world. It's also fantastic to hear about how very small nonprofits and NGOs are succeeding in accomplishing their conservation goals with very limited staff and resources. Many of the organizations that we work with here at Wild Lens fall into this category of very small startup nonprofits and NGOs, and it's one of the things that we really enjoy exploring here on the podcast, how passionate and motivated individuals can truly make a difference. Julian is certainly an example of this phenomenon, and it was fantastic to hear about the collaborative strategies that they are implementing in order to have an impact on an issue that in a lot of ways seems pretty daunting. It was also great to hear about all of the ways that folks living outside of Africa can contribute to giraffe conservation efforts. This is something that we wrestle with a lot here at Wild Lens, creating action items that allow folks to get involved in a conservation issue, and Julian had some fantastic ideas here. We'll have links in our show notes to Julian's organization, the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, as well as info on World Giraffe Day and how folks can get involved in this exciting newly created event. You can find those show notes at wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC7. That's wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC7. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice if you haven't already. And be sure to also check out our companion podcast, the Eyes on Conservation video podcast, where we are releasing this week our most popular Eyes on Conservation video episode to date, The Maasai Giraffe. This is a must watch, so be sure to check that out if you enjoyed this interview with Julian Fennessy. A big thanks to everyone for listening. This is your host, Matt Podolsky, signing off.